Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. Anita Lowe is somebody whose career I followed for a very long time. She opened up Anissa, which is a Michelin-starred restaurant in New York in 2000, and later closed it down a number of years later, and set about writing cookbooks and doing a lot of consulting and things like that, and she's just a, a force, and a, she writes beautifully. And her newest book uh, by Knopf uh, came out in 2018 is Solo, and it's an interesting book because not many books are written about how to cook for one, which sounds like a lonesome travail in a lot of ways, but it shouldn't be. We all have to nourish ourselves no matter what predicament we're in, and I think that feeding yourself can be a can provide a sense of solace and, and comfort to even if you are just solo. So there's a goodness in that, and the recipes are brilliant and yet simple, but Anita's just got a deft hand with food and flavors that is rare in in the way that she executes it so this was recorded in her new york apartment where we sat and just ate some food and talked about the world as it stands right now her time on tv her time as a chef how she's still a chef what she's doing now and uh it's a it's a good it's a good call let's call this one Anita Lowe cooks for one. I am in New York. I am in an apartment in the village on Charles Street. And I am sitting face to face with Anita Lowe. Anita, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. So Anita, you are a chef, a longtime chef. You just came out with an amazing book called Solo that just is winning a bunch of awards. And uh, tell me about Solo, because it's an interesting book. It's not, you know, you think, I mean, the premise of it is cooking for one. And there's kind of an attached sort of loneliness about that. But the book's not lonely at all. It's actually enticing and exciting and kind of, in some ways, is very soothing (laughs) against the concept of loneliness if that makes sense. <laughs> um, but yeah tell me about how it morphed and what what why you did it well I think um yes I mean so many cooks so many professional chefs that I know say they can't cook for less than 40 you know that's how they were trained and who says that uh a lot of people say really? that yeah I was just like how do you how could you not cook for I, mean, I just don't get that you know it's like don't you saute something on the line you know yeah. like you're on the line you know you're cooking from one person at one point or the other um but um or didn't you even ever leave home yeah like that's how i learned how to cook. For food at 19 in some yeah. weird apartment where you're going to school right exactly yeah um but that's how i initially learned how to cook which was just you know cooking for myself at when i went away to college and um you know, I just, I didn't think it was that hard. And I, um, yeah, one day I was talking to a friend of mine and for some reason we got on the subject of cookbook titles with my last name in it. Right. So, um, it was like low country cooking. We just had this ideation session, came up with maybe 50 some titles and, it's um, pretty easy with L.O. There you last go, name. yeah. It fits in well. There you go. So, yeah, um, two of them were alone and solo. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to write that. That could be hysterical. It could be just funny. And it would be easy to write, especially because the, the recipes have to be easy. And, um, yeah, so a couple of years later, I just made it happen. So, the it, it really does address this strange phenomena that people generally don't really just cook for themselves. Mostly we're in New York, so everybody eats out or gets takeout or gets seamless or whatever. It's so easy. But it, it, there's nourishment to cooking for yourself. And there's nourishment to you know go through the process of cooking, even if it just is for one. And I thought the book really illustrated that really well. And I, think, I thought it was poignant. Uh, I think that the only sad recipe I encountered was the cupcake for one. Um, that seemed really well that one was like oh no I don't want to get to that point Um, so yeah I didn't even I wasn't even gonna include a dessert section but you know my my publisher my editors thought I should have one it it is uh interesting like with the cupcake for one but you can you can definitely if you find 
love or someone who you want to cohabitate with easily expand the recipes to two. It's much easier. A cookbook for that only had recipes for 12 people is much more difficult to whittle down to two. This is pretty simple because you can just double it or quadruple it. Yeah, exactly. Or two and a third times for the modern nuclear family or whatever it is. Right. How many children do we have? Per... <laughs> so the uh, I thought the uh, doodles uh, and the art throughout uh, was really calming and really pretty. Uh, yeah, the fact I that love there was no pictures of the food is always an idiosyncratic cookbook to me, uh, but I like that in a lot of ways. Um, some of the British cookbooks I really like over time, Roast Chicken and Other Stories, books like that, um, really only had small amounts of art in it and no pictures. And they're always, to me more, uh, the narrative was always stronger with them. And that photos can be a bit of a crutch in a cookbook too. Uh, and, the, but the, and they can be a downside too because people have an expectation that everything they cook from the cookbook turns out exactly like the picture is. And rarely is that the case, you know, because we've fiddled with the picture over time and made, had three chefs create it. Right. So it's a bit of a cheat <laughs> in that way. Um, so tell me about the writing process and how that works. How do you how do you how do you figure out what people really want to what what to include in the cook in the book? I mean, is it always going to be ingredients that are phenomenally available, or is are you looking to broaden people's horizons and shift them to different locations and how they're procuring stuff, or is it just pa general pantry items? I mean, it, it seems like the book covers a pretty wide array of stuff, but people are alone in all fifty states, and you. This is true, um, but now we have things like Amazon. Yeah, we have. You can buy your miso online now. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I'm uh, even out in Long Island, you can get some stuff that you couldn't get before, you yeah. know? Like, I, I, I can buy gochujang in my King Cullen, which is like, you know, any grocery store in America. Uh -huh. um, yeah, in my King Cullen in in. in East Merchus. I will say so. Kroger in Athens, Georgia does not have gokuchang. Yeah. But we do have a series of wonderful Korean marts called H-Mart. Oh, yeah. I love H-Mart. We have about yeah. eight H-Marts around yeah. Atlanta. And I go there a lot. And shopping in H-Mart. Somebody wrote a beautiful story in The New Yorker about shopping at H-Mart last year that was a really poignant essay on it. Um, but it was it's uh, it's an amazing store. But so I, I have to stock up for these things. Uh, but a lot of America has those places now. So let's talk about Anissa because Anissa had uh, was so well reviewed and such a revered restaurant. Um, and it opened in 2000, right? Yep. And it went till 2017. Why did it shut down? A multitude of reasons. Multitude. Multitude of reasons. Um, I mean, the pressures on running restaurants in this city are a multitude of things. But what 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 led you to finally make that decision? Because sometimes you make those. We fret about them, and there there are babies, and there. It's very anxiety running a restaurant sometimes, and the economics of them is so difficult. Um, but then when you finally make the decision, it's kind of a weight off your shoulders. Oh God, yeah, way. yeah. No, I, I mean I made the right decision. Um, Sure, there are things I miss about it, but it was definitely the right decision at the right time. But yeah, we were getting squeezed financially. Yeah, you know, I had some issues with um, you know real estate taxes like jumping like right. a lot, and then you know the minimum wage was going up faster than we the than my clientele was happy paying for. <laughs> right, you know, so that just wasn't working and. Um, um, but at the end of the day, it was just, I was a little burned out. I had, I, I had a knee replaced and it wasn't a very good knee replacement. I had to have two follow-up surgeries and, um. Is it better now? Not really. I mean, it's better, but. Getting it, there? It, no, it's better. It's, it's just not, I, apparently when you get a knee replacement at my age, which, right. you know, is old, but it's not that old. Right. For a knee replacement. <laughs> like it just, you know, you, you expect to be able to use use it more than older people right and so generally younger people who get knee replacements don't like them so it, it is better than it was because i couldn't straighten my knee before that right it's it's i can't you know do those like you know 13 hour days yeah. on my feet anymore so no, 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 i can't do them either and nor what i want to but yeah. I, I still love the industry but it's a taxing one that's for sure yeah. so anisa had a number of michelin stars we had one. We yeah. had one, yeah. Oh. And 
I mean, it, it had beautiful reviews over time. Um, what do you think that restaurant, uh, what was the, what were you going for in the success of it? What do you derive from it now? After it's done, what do you look back on and what makes you very prideful? Well, you know, I think, um, yeah, I think we made some people happy. Yeah. And I think we, uh, you know, we we were by no means perfect, but I think we um, did a good job of taking care of our our employees. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was another reason why I couldn't, I just didn't, I, it just was too hard, you know, I just can't take, it was so much easier back in the day. And now I can't take, I couldn't take care of my employees the way I wanted to. And there was a lack of cooks. And I found myself getting mad at these cooks because they were, you know, at the end of the day, it wasn't their fault. They were inexperienced, you know. Um, Often inexperienced because they work one place for two months and they go to the new place that's opening work there for two months and they never really gather proper technique over time. They're just kind of... Oh, waiting. my God. And then, well, and, and with the new techniques now with, like, sous vide and all that stuff, there's a lot of... Co- like, I, I hired a cook that had been working for, like, two and a half years, mostly on a hotline. And couldn't saute a piece of fish. I was like, I was flabbergasted. Yeah. I was flabbergasted. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're hiring for a new restaurant right now, what do, you, what do you want people, what do you want young cooks to know how to cook that they sometimes stumble on now? Like sauteing pieces of fish. But to me, it's like, hey, can you roast a chicken? Show me that yeah. you can roast a chicken. Yeah. Um, because oftentimes they're like, well, they want to carve it up and put it in a bag and put it in right. a water bath and... Uh, and then Chris the skin off afterwards, and it's like, no, you're missing the point. And, yeah. You know that that's that's a step and an aid to feed a lot of people consistently. Yeah. It's not necessarily the way you should be cooking everything, and you need to have the precepts of base technique before you get into those games as well. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So what do you ask? Like, what it? What's a young cook? What do they need now? Well, well, yeah, a solid foundation. I mean, yeah. It's a- yeah. So why are they learning that? I mean, it's where are they learning about food? I'm not cooking sure because yeah, best. well, they go to cooking school, but I'm not quite sure that they really, you know. I mean, cooking school will teach you the basics, but it doesn't make you hone the basics. Right. So and um, it teaches you very little about pressure of actually doing it every day. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Getting down to it, and rarely do they tell you that you're probably going to make earning slightly more than minimum wage for about eight years of your life, and then you get to be a sous chef, which is. Yeah. Asked to be, you know, doing Satan's little helper work. Um, For 16 hours a day. Yeah, for 16 hours a day. (laughs) Because you could be salaried. Yes, yeah. Which, yeah, is nobody's ever caught up to that in the labor law too much. So, what are you doing now? I mean, the book's out, the book's done really well, and you're traveling a little bit. uh, You've got a documentary that's coming out that you were featured in called The Heat. And tell me about that. Um, this was a documentary um, made by Maya Gallus, who is from Toronto, and uh, she followed a handful of female chefs around, and she was trying to see. Well, you know, I think the premise of the of the of the story was about uh, you know making making the restaurant industry a kinder and gentler place, and, right? And how women are at the are quietly at the forefront of that. Um, um, but yeah, um, she followed. You know, she went and interviewed uh, Anne Sophie Peake in 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 France. Uh, Amanda Cohn was in it. Victoria Blamey, who's incredibly talented, was in it, um, and a handful of chefs from Toronto. Um, Do you think that the industries? It seems to have gone through a pretty rapid. Uh sort of come up in some, some good change that's happened in the last five, ten years. Um, but I still think we're at the cusp of a lot of significant change within the industry, whether it be like how we treat people overall and uh, parity within the industry. But yet we still have, you know, best women chefs. And, yeah, that's ridiculous. Which is so silly That makes and me stupid. so, yeah, whatever. That's where I want to, you know, yeah. sick Sophie or Tracy Desjardins on them, and uh, <laughs> this is a woman who was like leading Joachim's Bleak Owl's restaurants when she was like 23. Yeah. You know, yeah. badasses are badasses, it doesn't matter. Uh, but you know, Dominique Crin, uh, you know, three stars, yeah, three stars, <laughs> and, and she's amazing, she just happens to be a she. 
but but still intrinsically in all that conversation is that you know a lot of us is still this precept that it was and is a mostly male dominated industry yeah you know it's changing and I think a lot of people are huge proponents, including me, of that change, um, because all the so many of the chefs that I really look up to are like Jessica Coslow at Squirrel in L.A. and um, Tracy and Mary Sue Milliken and people like this are uh, have been doing this for years, and it, it doesn't matter. And so the industry is changing. We've seen that, and then coupled with that is a. a ton of ramifications of the Me Too movement and fallout from that and people falling from their grace as they should be tumbling even faster. Um, but all of that, it's like, what's the end result? How are we bettering our system? Like, what do we need to do next to make sure that, sure that there's ongoing parity, that p- there's less exploitation, that harassment just is not an issue anymore? How do we get that out of the industry completely? Like, what do we need oh, to God. focus on? Well, it's culture. I think. I think culture. Well, I think we can regulate, which mm-hmm. is, I think is happening here in New York City. Um, but that's also difficult, um, as long as, especially if you don't. You know, you can. I mean, how do you how do you punish that, and how do you even catch it, and you know that sort of thing. I mean, as you, as you, like a lot of these offenses are are done behind closed doors and it's a, you know, he said, she, she said right sort of thing. And then when your higher ups are male, a lot of, I mean, I'm, I was just hearing a story recent, just yesterday about something just like this. Right. Where, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was a all male, um, a management team. And one of them had sexually harassed, uh, someone and she went to some of the higher ups and, and Nothing happened. They, yeah, yeah, they covered it up and made it go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess uh, the it's it's interesting to see how quickly it's changing. That I don't think that that is is going to be allowed to happen. Uh, Hopefully, soon. I yeah. think we're pushing towards that. Yeah, I don't know that what the plan is and how the roadmap is to get there to that point. But I think you're right. I think it's cultural, and I think it's slowly we've got a more informed culture coming up. There's right. transparency that's been forced on the industry, which is really good. Yeah, training, and, yeah. all of that stuff. Yep. So, I, and, and, and finally an understanding by people on what harassment really is. Because yeah. I don't think a lot of people historically really understood. Uh, half the time what they did was wrong. And it was so wrong. But right. they didn't get it. Right. So, um, so it is an interesting realm. I mean, restaurants are harder than ever, it seems, to run. I don't know how people do it in New York. I just don't. So kudos to you for doing it for so long. <laughs> this show is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox delivers healthy, 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range chicken, organic, and heritage breed pork directly to your door on a monthly basis. It's a subscription for goodness. All their products are humanely raised and never ever given antibiotics or hormones. It's hard to find high quality meat you can trust. ButcherBox is changing that. They offer free shipping anywhere in the United States, in the 48 contiguous states that is. Not only is it convenient, the taste is unbelievable. So just a reminder, I'm a chef. There's a huge difference in flavor between animals raised on pasture and those fed grain and concentrated animal feedlot operations. There's no commitment, and you can cancel at any time. Right now, get $20 off and free ground beef for life. That's two pounds of ground, 100% grass-fed ground beef in every order for the lifetime of your subscription. That's a lot of burgers. To get the deal, go to butcherbox.com backslash stir the pot. Eat well. Be swell. This show is being brought to you by Molecule. M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E. Molecule is the only air purifier that actually destroys pollutants. Molecule introduces a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying those air pollutants at a molecular level. One customer even said that she was, quote, able to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. That's pretty amazing. I like clean air. 
So you should go online like I did and go to Molecule.com, M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com, enter promo code Hugh, H-U-G-H, at checkout and get some clean air in your life. It is an amazing, amazing air purifier. So you worked with a lot of people um, it, it, throughout the years around here, like David Boulay yep. and then David Waltuk, mm -hmm. Chanterelle. Mm -hmm. You got Best New Chef in 2001. I got it in 2002, which was the strangest class of Best New Chefs ever. Half of them, are, I don't know if they are in the industry anymore, and the other half are like Dan Barber and Grant Atkins. So, <laughs> it's a very weird class yeah. of which I'm just like, I don't know. okay, that's good. Um, what like was that? I mean, there, there are some breakthroughs in my personal career, which I think launched me to another echelon of what I would do, what p other people see as success, and I just feel is like a recognition of some type, and it means a lot to me. But it's not the story of my success. That's yeah. just happily employing people. Um, but Best New Chef was big, and my first big review of my first restaurant. I remember that being like really good and really like it meant something to me like somebody had come and really given a thumbs up to what we were doing and it meant a lot um but then best new chef kind of launched me into this whole new world you know like flying you out to aspen and stuff like yeah, that that was nice here and you know yeah so it was exciting but what moments in 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 that progression of your career did you find were really defining moments defining moments i mean yeah that uh yeah best new chef was huge for me yeah um have you made friends from that class that you continue with um can you name one person who is on that <laughs> wiley dufresne <laughs> wiley, wiley dufresne. dufresne yeah I, wiley. See him. I, I still see him every once in a while we don't hang yeah, but i see him every once in a while man has a heart of uh, gold though yeah i mean yeah, i kept up with uh craig uh what is his name craig somebody craig craig from... stole yeah. Oh, I, from uh, San Francisco? From yeah, kind of. Delfina. Yeah, from Delfina. I, yeah. I, I didn't really kept, keep up with him, but I was sending people his way, and he was sending people my way for a while. But, um, yeah, I haven't kept up with anybody yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you were on, uh, what season of Top Chef Masters were you on? First. You were on first. I was on second. Yeah. Uh, how was that experience? <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of harrowing. I, it's it's probably, a little harrowing. Yeah. So in hindsight, it's a lot less harrowing to what I've seen on Top Chef, where they all have to like live together and stuff like that. At least we didn't have to live together. Which oh, yeah, exactly. But still, it's like you know, all of us. I mean, I talked to like <laughs> Rick Bayless after that. It's like, yeah, for weeks I was having these like nightmares about yeah, <laughs> like we po totally had post traumatic stress disorder. It was like. <laughs> I was reading about Rick Bayless's brother the other day. What does his brother do? I don't know, yeah. I forget who he is. He's something totally not in food and is very famous. I can't remember what it was. Um, there was a section in your book called Less Basic But Really Delicious Items You Should Know More About, which I think is an amazing chapter uh, name. Um, but tell me, <laughs> tell me about that part of the book. What should people know more about that they don't know about? When it comes to the book, not everything. Yeah, those are just some more esoteric, um, mostly dry goods. Mm -hmm. That um, so it's kind of a glossary of looking through things that they wouldn't commonly cook with, right? Yeah, exactly. I would, yeah. yeah, expanding people's horizons. I think you know we live in a global village now. When do you think that's going to eat that way? Yeah. I mean, when did we when did we move away from uh, uh, an innate love of continental cooking and Americana cooking? Uh, and that Chinese restaurants were like still such a, a a different part of the palate in the world than the way we're used to. And now, when did it become the, of the harmony between the the two things? Like when did, you know I was talking to Tom Colicchio about this once about palates and um, what dishes reverberate well with people on Top Chef, like. When they're cooking, it's like, what sometimes are the judges looking for? And they're looking for something totally different than they were 20 years ago. Because right. our palates have changed so much that we love umami and we love spice and we like acid. But that wasn't always the case. So what do you think? Like, where where'd that change occur where you can go to Indianapolis and have really amazing food? 
Is it because the generational shift of chefs going to New York from all over the place, or San Fran, and then moving back home? Well, it could be. I mean, it also has, you know, I think you need to look at this sort of, you know, you know the bigger picture, which is that we've got, you know, we've got the Food Network. People are watching. Um, we're, we're, we're people. Guy Fieri's grocery show? Well, not that one, yeah, but that, well, somebody you know, watches that. Yeah, one. I mean, well, Iron okay. Chef came on, and Iron Chef did come on, and that was, you know, that that was a Japanese show to begin mm-hmm. with, and um, you know, so that became part of the public consciousness, consciousness, and yeah, we've got the internet now; you can access. Um, but yeah, and and even in the middle of America, there are pockets of of immigrants, um, you know, and hopefully. You know, we we talk to each other, yeah. And somehow we got through the fusion food phase. I don't think we ever got through the fusion food. Well, phase. at least the dubbing of it, the yeah, wasabi maybe. mashed potatoes of the world. Right, exactly. Yeah. But but now, it, I mean, if you infuse gochujang is a great example into a butter and use it on a steak, is that fusion food? I guess it is. Of course, it's fusion. But it's, it's good. Fusion. I would I would argue that any classic dish that you can come up with is some sort of fusion. Yeah, that's probably true too. Yeah, and borders were never at, you know, have always been moving. Yeah. So how do you really, you know, if you look at France and you get closer to Spain, it looks more like Spanish food. You go closer to Germany, it looks more like German. Oh yeah, I mean Southwest yeah. France around Biarritz and stuff like that. I mean yeah. tapas culture is still over there. It's not you know French fondant culture, so it's different. So we're in the village. Where do you eat right around here? Oh, there's a lot of great food right here. There's uh, a lot of great food right here. Damn. Um, right here we've got yeah, Via Corota, which is just around the corner. Which I ate there. Well, I had a glass of wine there last night before going out to dinner. I went to Netta, the sushi Netta's place. good, yeah. It was great. It was yeah. Shuko, but it was It's good. not Shuko, yeah. No. There's a better pla- place. Actually, I'm not going to shit on Netta here. But no, no, no. <laughs> Netta yeah. was great. Yeah. I, uh, there is a place called Kosaka. Up okay. on Thirteenth Street, which is excellent. It's you can go have omakase. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, there is, yeah, Jonathan Waxman's around here. Oh, Barbudo's right. Barbudo's yeah. close. Uh, um, yeah, there's a place called Moustache, which is a really incredible Middle Eastern place. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a good ramen place. There's all, there's all sorts of stuff here. It's, yeah, it's, it's New York City, so it is yeah. New York City. Uh, recently I was in another podcast where uh, I was interviewing Adam Platt and uh, we were at Little Tong Noodle Shop and the chef there, Simone, made this amazing, it's like scallion bread, but no scallions. And then this kind of special sauce type of thing, which equated to almost like a Big Mac special sauce, um, but then <laughs> braised beef shank and pickles and uh, some crunchy sort of lettuce. And it was like folded like a hero and it was amazing. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> she is so talented. Yeah. And she was so ebullient and uh, she was so interesting and sort of, yeah, but man, her food was so good. So, yeah, I'm always jealous sometimes when I come up here and peruse around the hoods. Well, you've got to come and well. visit more often. I know. So, in, what do we teach young chefs? What do we teach not young chefs? What do we teach? What, what is every human? What do they need to learn about food? What do they need to know to be better humans, to eventually change community and health impacts and whatever and away from this, you know, tight strangle of convenience and convenience foods? Well, what yeah, can we you, teach you... a younger generation? All of your choices, all of your food choices are political on some level. You kind of vote with your choices. Um, and food is culture. Uh, food is identity. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think with my book, I was hoping to get people to 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 stop just eating junk food. I mean, there's, there's so much of it that is just quick and easy and cheap, and it's not that good for you. Um, and studies have shown that, you know, if, if you're cooking at home with whole ingredients, it's 50, it's already 50%, you 
you know, just right there. It, it doesn't even matter what you're cooking. It's 50% more healthy. Yeah. <laughs> so. Because you're not adding all the things in there that stabilize things. Yeah. Keep it fresh and keep it on a shelf. And yeah. And, it, and but people equate cooking to being expensive. And I find like I'm always hell-bent on proving to people that I can feed them for like $2.50 really readily and easily. Um, but it's a means that you have to have a pattern of shopping and an understanding of seasonality. And you got to know how to poach an egg. Um, that helps immensely if you oh, yeah. cheaply. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I work a lot with uh, rewriting home ec curriculum for middle schools. And I'm always trying to hone down on... Like, what are the 16 skills, not tech, it's techniques, but not recipes, that I want every kid to know and learn to make life easier later on. Yeah. So what are those, like, 12 things? That's what I'm always trying to nurture in my head. It's like, what's that little curriculum for everyone? Saute, braise, yeah. soup, puree. Yeah. How to make a vinaigrette from scratch. Vinaigrette, so yeah. To go down that aisle. Yeah. And how to properly poach, yeah, poach fish or yeah. crisp. Steam, yeah. Yeah. And there's so many ways that are fast and, and good, and, but your book spells out a lot of them, which is great. Um, so, and it's cheap if you're not wasting. Yeah, yeah, but we're wasteful in this world. Yeah. It's hard to, to hone that down. Well, you've got to be conscious of it. And, and, you know, there's all sorts of tips in my book for yeah. you know, keeping things fresh and not wasting. Yeah. yeah. I was uh, hungry when I was writing notes for you, and I got takeout mushu pork from her local Chinese place in Athens. There were three different fortune cookies. One is, <laughs> one is nothing is impossible to a willing heart. Number two is share your abundant humor with others at this time. They need it. I thought that was good. Yeah. Really, really that point, like that directed. Uh, you are an artistic person. Let your colors show. Um, but uh, yeah, those those are uh, words of wisdom from the uh, from the fortune cookies from the fortune so, cookie factory. Yeah. <laughs> so, who's uh, other than people like Amanda Cohen? Who uh, who are you excited for in the future of food? Who amongst your friends are you most not envious of, but proud of to see to know them and uh, and occasionally cook with them and watch their careers? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of people that used to work for me that 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 are are really taking off. I mean, um, that's so amazing when that happens. Yeah, it's so it's awesome. It feels like I can just retire and yeah, you know, I'm done. It's yeah, like go ahead, you, it's your turn. I raised you. Now yeah. you are out in the world. Yeah, <laughs> but I've got um, there is a, a Suzanne Cups is up at Untitled. Um, yeah, at the Whitney, and uh, she's killing it and. Um, she's killing it. Yeah, her she's, food's so good. Yeah, and it's beautiful. She's, a, I mean, she was, yeah, I mean, she worked for me for five years. And I think Danny was having issues with that restaurant. Not issues, but it, you know, she really has made it what it is. Yeah. And it's such an amazingly interesting space in a lot of ways that it could be a difficult spot. Right. But it, with her there, it's just like they're right there and they're cooking. It's all glass. You know, it's just. Yeah, her food's just so fresh. And you go to the Whitney and you see art and come back and have a drink and yeah. And look, at, and look at pretty food on a plate. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I need a deep dish sausage and a thin pepperoni for here. Where does inspiration come from? I was always making bread at night with my with my auntie. How do the nation's best pizza makers rise above the rest? Each style of bread has its own really great ideas. It's Pizza City, a new podcast from me, Steve Delinsky, co-host of The Feed Podcast and author of Pizza City USA. Join me every other Friday as I go back in the kitchens with some of the nation's greatest pizza makers. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This place is great. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I got it in the bottom of the market in the 90s. Um, so I was just really, really lucky. So what do you got? Um, so this is something from my 
cookbook, which is pretty classic. It's just a green, like a chili verde with mm-hmm. pork in it. Um, but I'm gonna make um, sort of a huevos rancheros like I had in the Yucatan. I've been I've been um, leading some tours, um, some culinary tours with uh, the Tour de Forks. Okay. And we've gone to the Yucatan twice now. We're gonna hopefully make that an annual trip. Um, um, we stay in this gorgeous hacienda. That's awesome. And they cook for us. And um, this isn't quite the same thing, but I'm going to do near it. Near like Merida or near Tulum? Or... In, in Merida, yeah. Okay. Merida, yeah. or like outside of Merida. Yeah. And, um, and um, yeah, and so I'm going to make a, a huevos rancheros somewhat like they made us down there. Um, yeah, and then I'm just, these are both from the cookbook kind of, but this isn't. That's from the cookbook, but this is not. The, the pork is from the cookbook, but the rest of it really isn't. It's a plate. Yeah. And this is a um, little habanero sauce in case you like it a little bit more. Very cool. More spicy. And then I've got a broccoli stem oh. slaw. I like your coffee set up. Huh? I like your coffee set up. Oh, yeah. I dated a um, barista for a while, and uh, I... I've, now, I, I've been really. You can't go back now. Yeah, I've been really. Yeah, there's no going back. Once you've got a good coffee set up, there's no going back. Yes, yeah, terrible. Yeah. But it's annoying now because I like when you travel. Like I have a hard case kit with a kettle like that and an AeroPress and a small hand grinder, and that's been great. Hand grinders are hard, yeah. Hand grinders are a workout in the morning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I don't use. I have an AeroPress. You have to do it before your coffee. Yeah. So air presses are great, but uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a work workout. All right. Broccoli stems. Yeah. It's funny. Why did we throw them away for so long? I we I never did in, in my family. My mom always we used to just eat them. This is but this has some kohlrabi in it because the they didn't have that much broccoli stem. That's amazing how similar they are too. Oh, I should have done it this other way. What am I doing? Oh, we just need a little bit. Doesn't matter. My mise en haven't been cooking in a while. It's okay. It's like the only kitchen in New York that's getting a lot of work. Work. Oh my God! I used to never cook here, but now I'm going back to these really easy recipes that I used to make when I was younger, just because it's like a pain in the ass to cook in this. Little, yeah. Yeah. But that's great. Yeah. But those, that's. This is the foods of nourishment, I think. Yeah, exactly. If we made food like we do in restaurants at home every day, I think we'd all be exhausted yeah. and tired of that food pretty quickly. Do you cook at home ever? Yeah, I cook all the time at home. Oh, really? Yeah. That's I mean, I've got two daughters. Oh, that's nice. So they're, they're older now. They're 14 and 16. Yeah. Uh, but I cook for them all the time when I'm home. Thank you. All right, what am I doing? Salt. I talked to uh, Flynn McGarry this morning. Oh, yeah. I haven't been to his place. Guys, uh, I, I keep saying kid, and I then keep correcting myself. He's not a kid. He's just, he's an amazingly ambitious young man who's done really well. He it's, was a kid when he, he started, was a kid. though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's why but, we still think of him as a kid. But he's, he's really, guys, he's brilliantly smart. Yeah. Um, it, and I always always thought he got this name of being, you know, this prodigy and all this stuff. And I always kind of never really understood that. I was like, to me, he's just a kid who was like dead set on this occupation from the age of like six. So, and he just ran with it. So it's interesting to see him though. He's got that little tiny restaurant on the Lower East Side. Yeah? Is it doing well? Uh, yeah, I think, I think he's yeah. backing it in. It's 24 seats though. It's tiny. Oh, God. How many seats was in these? Uh, 48. Yeah. Yeah, Amanda's had like a, a 20. The first dirt candy was something like 24 seats. But she doubled in size, didn't she, with the second one? Yeah. Yeah. And you can do it, but I mean, you know, Jim Flynn's place is all ticketed. Is dirt candy ticketed? No. Ticketed. Damn. That, that... I know. That's a terminology that really is, just yeah. came in, too. Credence now. I find it kind of annoying. I get it. Well, it's, I know, but as a business yeah. owner, it's like, man, yeah. those no shows, well, mostly when you've got 24 seats. Yeah. Those no shows kill you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, 
So what was your first cooking job? Boulet. Wow. Yeah, right out of uh, right out of college. But you didn't go to cooking school. I did go to cooking school, but I went to I took like four week long classes, um, the junior the summer after my junior year in college. Right. And then I went and worked at Boulet, and then after Boulet, I went back and got a grand diplôme in France. Right. Yeah. Okay. And David hired you with virtually no experience, right out of the gate. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I yeah. made I made canapes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah. Well, it was amazing because back then we did, um, we had a canapé plate. It was like usually about five or six different canapés mm-hmm. on a plate, like little tiny tastes. But this isn't what I wanted it to be. But His, That restaurant was so seminal in so many ways back then. Whatever happened to brush stroke? I think that... it just closed. Or okay. it's just about to close or something like that. Oh. Okay. All right. So this is just a slaw. It's a slaw. It's a slaw. What happened to my lemon? I want more lemon in there. There we go. So we've got a pozole verde, or not pozole, just a chili verde. Chili verde. Yeah. Yeah. Pork. We've got black beans. We've got crisp tortillas. And I'm gonna put an egg on it. Got a slaw. Of broccoli stem and kohlrabi. I'm just gonna make one dish if that's okay. That's cool. Yeah. I'm totally into the one dish. Okay. And we've also got a container of Top Stick, the original men's grooming tape. <laughs> Here, that's yours. Audio man. Mm-hmm. That's for the microphone. Grooming tape? What do you do with that? It's for your microphone. Two pays, but it also works for microphones. Oh, it's for two pays. Originally. Really? Wow. That's weird. Did somebody just have that in there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> taping my whole head to my scalp. <laughs> All right. This is almost done. Oh, I don't have a. So, but you cook here more often now? Yeah, just because I have to, but. Um... It's okay. Yeah, I'm kind of a housewife every once in a while. I, uh, yeah, I have food on the table when Mary comes home. Right. Which is nice. But uh, she comes home late. Yeah, but it's nice. I, I mean, I'm reconnecting with some dishes that my mom used to make that I yeah. haven't made in, like, decades. Yeah. So, and, you know, this... this I'm trying to think of the dishes what my, mom, my mother used to make. Chicken piccata. I remember getting Gourmet Magazine making this cold spaghetti. It sounded gross, but it was actually really good. With like tons of capers and tomato sauce. Oh, I like that. Oh, with But it was chilled spaghetti. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. It was good. With the... Uh... But this huh. would have been like 19, you know, 1980 Gourmet Magazine. Right. Um, edition. This is what the little ladies just would make for us every year. So when you're in the Yucatan and you're staying in a little hacienda, are they making you breakfast and stuff? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And then you, you would do cooking classes and things like that? Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. And then we'd also go to markets and, yeah, it's just really, really fun. Which one do I like best? This one. It's funny that, you know, cooking simpler recipes and getting back to things like her mother's made and things like that is a great way of sort of exploring places where we didn't th- think technique existed. Right. <laughs> that it was just like, oh, just food appeared, but there was actually technique in it. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It can be really delicious, just these little simple things. Yeah. And I do think cooking, you know, what you love can be... Yeah, self-reaffirming as well. So. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. In a lot of ways, that's it. Food should be. Oh, I forgot this. Damn it. Okay. 
Is that parsley or cilantro? Cilantro, yeah. I hope you don't mind cilantro. I love cilantro. All right, good. I'm not one of the soap eaters. Yeah. But that is now proven as a real thing. Yeah. That they taste soap. It's weird. Well, you... But if you eat it... If you eat a little bit every day, you can... You can... Your, yeah. Yeah, it's like weaning yourself off of an allergy. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Beautiful. What's that? Huh? Just cabbage? Yeah, it's just cabbage. Cabbage and radishes. Yeah. A fried egg. Beautiful cilantro. It's like huevos rancheros. Yeah. Black good. beans in between crisp chilies. Yeah. There you go. And then the sauce. What what uh, little what little concept in New York and I've got one in my mind, are you most uh, not envious of, but or like envious of. I mean, to me, Atla is like ah, so oh. beautiful as a tiny concept, and the food's so good. Yeah. Gosh. Um. Well, I'm, I'm also yeah. jealous of that little tong sandwich. But, jealous. I'd be yeah. jealous of. Not jealous. I just. I. I. I wish I'd. You know. Yeah. Oh, this isn't really photographable, but <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? What do I love? Yeah, I'm I kind of jealous of, um, I mean, I love, I eat it all. I, I, I'm i not really jealous. I think I'm, you know, happy that they have this. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. To own a place like um, um, Via Corota. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I. Shoot, they yeah. do such amazing. It's so perfect. Yeah. It's, it's not just perfect, it's the power of. And they set up shops so beautifully with such a clear design aesthetic. Right, but I think she did just it. Her, the, I think Jody did it herself. Oh, yeah. I, you should, yeah. yeah. Uh, just the menus <laughs> of Boudette, like the actual physical menus are yeah. like, oh my God, this yeah. is so amazing. Every time I'm there, I just. It, they're places that feel so comforting. Yeah. And the food's great, but you know, it's like a buvet, they just, you know, you and get the lamb yeah. leg and they're, they're packed. But you know, the bartender's like carving lamb leg right there, yeah. and puts it on simple <laughs> slathering of salsa verde. And that simplicity with that type of food works so exceptionally well there. And yeah. you have a glass of rosé and it's like, ah, but I'm in New York and I feel like I'm in Paris and I don't know, we Lyon or something like that. Mm. This is great. Thank you. This is so good. Simple. Dig in. What time do you eat dinner normally? I don't normally eat at any time. Are you a snacker? Um, or you just never eat? No, I'm not a snacker. I eat... I, I eat, eat like a bird. I eat, no, I eat a lot. I eat two meals a day. Um, but dinner time is erratic only because, you know, my girlfriend doesn't... It depends when she gets out. Right. Um, yeah. And or, or then sometimes I'll go and eat early because I'm meeting somebody. Right. Uh, that stew's great. Thanks. Yeah, that's that that part is from the book. And the stew is just the thickening of the stew is just the gelatin in the pork bones. Um, and are they ribs? Pureed tomatillo. Uh, There's some rib in this. I think in the book it's just calls for stewing meat, which yeah. could be, um, there's some pork shoulder in there. Yeah. yeah. But if you want it to be a little bit spicier, this is the habanero. Uh, yeah, put it right there. Yeah. Do it. Habanero with lime. So this is just... Just habanero. Yeah, just, you know, burnt habaneros with lime and uh, salt. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, they usually have the, the ones in the Yucatan that they the little ladies use are usually green, but this is all I could get. And I, I grew up with a family that was had a lot of roots in the Caribbean. And my grandmother who had lived in the Caribbean 
in Jamaica and Cuba for you know her whole life. She would make Scotch bonnet. It's Scotch bonnet and habanero are pretty much the same thing. Yeah. But they, she would call them the Scotch bonnet, and she'd make these like infernally hot, um, like jellies with them, and she would have them with cream cheese on a triscuit every day with her rum drink. Nice. My my six foot two grandmother named Frida. <laughs> she was a badass. Love it. Uh, pretty cool. But yeah, she used to grow all her own habaneros out back in Florida and before that in the Caribbean, not growing up there. So I grew up with habaneros and scotch bonnets and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I think that finally our palates, uh, uh, at least the middle ground of America's palates, are growing more comfortable with a lot of spice, which is great. I mean, I, I love habaneros, so that's cool. The Yucatan is, uh, I, I, the only time I really went there was when I was very young, um, like 16. And I always loved Merida as a city, though. We spent like four days yeah, there. It's beautiful. It's a really cool city. Yeah. And then I remember being in Tulum before yoga and um, spandex was really popular than, there. Yeah. <laughs> and then like Palenque and all those places and into Belize. But I always culturally loved the food there. But I remember getting like 16... You know, it's as a quasi school trip or something like that, and having this kind of chile verde like this. Except I took the first bite of it; it was this huge hunk of pork skin with um, like two inches of hair on it still, oh. which was like the strangest thing to first your first bite in yeah. Mexico. I was like, oh no, this is gonna be a weird. <laughs> it's gonna be a weird trip. Um, but yeah, um, as long as they take the hair out, I was always okay with it. But, uh, <laughs> So, well, Anita, this has been delightful. Thank you for feeding me and having your, me in your apartment. Yeah. And I'm hoping uh, Solo continues to sell like crazy, which it is. And hoping the documentary will see it soon on some way, shape, or form. I'm sure it'll be out there after it makes its circuit. And uh, good luck in your travels. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. This episode of Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot was taped on location at Anita Lowe's apartment in Greenwich Village, in Manhattan, in New York. Scott Porch produces the show for Himalaya Media with field recording by Brian Blum, sound design by Alex Ramsey, and editing by Mackenzie Mazel. Please follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on your podcast app and come back on Tuesdays for new episodes. If you have the Himalaya app, those come out on Monday, one day ahead of time. It's a good impetus to get the Himalaya app. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Hugh Atchison, where I talk about things I see. I'm incredulously political. Right now I'm listening to a lot of Mogwai. Good band. Lots of jazz. Things like that. But until next time, thanks for listening. Eat well. Peace well. <laughs>